It was two years ago, almost to the day that I stood up here and pronounced judgment on the year that was 2020. Anybody remember that? Remember the labels that I gave it? The Annus Horribilis. The year that would live in infamy. The year that we would like to forget. But as we look back to 2022, how would we describe it? How would we name it? The truth is that it's kind of cheeky to, on the first day of the new year, stand and pronounce judgment on the old, because that judgment will be determined by history, won't it? Not by looking at it from such a close vantage point. But be the year good or bad, it is, I was going to say fun, it's not fun, but it is a fascinating subject, isn't it? And to find a measuring stick for our times is an exercise that we all enjoy. And on the flip side, who knows what the coming year may bring. Uh, Newsflash, I don't, and I don't think you do either. But the year was 1968. It was the year of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. It was the year of the famous Democratic National Convention in Chicago in which Hubert Humphrey was nominated to be the Democratic candidate, much to the disappointment of the 10,000 young people camped in Grant Park that summer. It was the year that saw the assassination of the senator from New York, Robert F. Kennedy, and of the Reverend Martin Luther King on a hotel balcony in, I think it was Memphis. It was the year of Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Oh, is there a hand out there? One or, one or two. How about if I added the name Peter Norman to the list? Would that ring a bell? In the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City, having finished first and third in the 200-meter race, uh, Tommy, John Carlos and Tommy Smith mounted the podium to the playing of the national anthem and held up their fists with black gloves. It was interesting to me, they had one right hand and one left hand. Their intention was to have two pairs of gloves when they went up there, but they forgot one, so they had to split up a pair and do it that way. Peter Norman was the second place finisher from Australia. The three actually became great friends over the years after that. And both um, sprinters were summarily banned from participating in any further events at the Games and also were banned from presence at the Games and subsequently were blacklisted from the sport. That was in 1968. It was also, by the way, <coughs> the year of the Apollo 8 space mission tasked with taking photographs of the dark side of the moon as a precursor to the Apollo 9, which would happen the following year. But do you remember the photo? Have you ever seen it? I think you have. That was unexpected and stunning, unlooked for. Anybody remember? Far more interesting than the dark side of the moon. And you can go ahead and hit that slide if you would. It was the picture of the 
beautiful and fragile-looking little ball of the earth viewed from some 250,000 miles distant, so unlike anything else in our observable universe. And so the term Earthrise was born. I know it seems like a long time ago to many of you, <laughs> long before you were born. But it was in October of that year, 1968, that I sat as a junior in high school on the couch of a friend's house, and the gospel was explained to me for the first time in clarity and in simplicity, and I listened, and when invited, I bowed my head to the Savior of my soul. And I asked for forgiveness of my sins. Another 16-year-old boy led me to Christ, and I knew that something was different about him because he would do strange stuff. At our track team at Wheaton North High School, the pole vault pit was padded with these gigantic canvas bags filled with little bits and pieces of foam rubber. We didn't have uh, fans and airbags. And every day, the, these bags would have to be dragged across the parking lot from some storage locker somewhere on campus, dragged to the pole vault pit, and placed there. And bits of foam rubber would just shoot out all over the place like snow through the thousands of little holes and tears in the bags. And we liked it that way. But my friend, I began to understand that my friend who would go around picking up bits of foam was simply trying to work out his salvation in immature ways, sure, but in ways that would demonstrate commitment and consistency in his redeemed life. And I watched and I listened to his words, and I became a child of God on that October evening in 1968. And if I were to suggest that from that moment on, every single thing in my life changed, that would not be an overstatement. If I suggested to you this morning that I did a 180-degree turn, that my understanding of the world found a new cohesiveness and various pieces of the puzzle of my life began to fit in my understanding, and I began to see possibilities within myself that neither I nor anyone else had seen before, that I found an ember of settled courage that allowed me to move forward and not be quite so afraid. All of that is true. But in fairness... It's also true that people could and probably have said the same thing about joining Weight Watchers or being in the Rotary Club. And it's not to denigrate our own personal testimony or our own personal experience, but we have a better weather gauge. I'm praising this, the Lord this morning that though the testimony of our experience matters and speaks loud and clear, we have a standard upon which to stand that is better than our experience. It's the clear, consistent, ringing word of God that is the true and living testimony and measuring stick of a life. And as Pastor Kip might put it, and I won't even try to do it the way he would put it, it always points true north. Okay? So turn to Philippians 4, verse 1 which provides us a strong place to stand. I had chosen this passage a few weeks ago, by the way, but then something was nagging in the back of my mind that, did we preach this before? And sure enough, in the spring of 2018, we did, and I actually preached on the same passage or parts of 
the same passage. And, but after my blood pressure settled just a bit, I thought, you know what? This passage is tailor-made for a congregation to hear marching out of one year and into the next. And I hope that we'll see that this morning. And go ahead and hit the slide there if you would, Micah. Chapter 4, verse 1 goes like this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I want to notice two things right away. First, the statement is filled with relational affirmations. And you can hit the next slide. Notice he says, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, my beloved. If it was in another context, say, for example, an email from a relative, I might think they were trying to borrow money <laughs> or about to ask. But these are not simply extraneous, complimentary closings by the Apostle Paul. They open a window into his heart as well as into the tender affections of the people to whom he is writing, the Philippians, in that Roman colony. It tells us that the key to standing firm in the Lord is to be found in the preceding text. How do we know that? Because of the word therefore and the word thus. Right? The word thus. And you can um, hit slide four. The first uh, three verses of chapter three are a good place to start because Paul begins that chapter with the word finally. It's interesting. He's not nearing the end of the letter quite yet. He's exactly halfway through at this point, but he says, finally. And he gives some instruction that is, will be very helpful to us, I think. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The admonition here is a great place to begin as we pack our bag and get ready to step into the unknown that is next year. <coughs> and I've, I've chosen that kind of thematic approach because for uh, some of my grandkids, we had a conversation one time about if you had to pack a bag to go to some distant place, you didn't know how long you are going to be gone, what would you bring? What would you put in the bag? So for us this morning, we're going to discover some things to put into our go bag. It's not, uh, we are to, to begin with, to rejoice in the Lord. That's our default position. Folks, it's not whistling in the dark. It's walking into the unknown with what we know for sure, which is this, that we can walk clean and guiltless not in our own highly suspect, wobbling self-righteousness, but in the only righteousness that matters, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we do well to rejoice. Verse 3 adds some more clarity. Who are we? We are those who worship. That's who we are, and it's who we shall be. 
We will worship by the Spirit of God. We will worship in our surrender to Jesus Christ as we have worshipped in 2022, so we shall worship in 2023. And by God's grace, we will do it better and better as our maturity grows and as we walk along farther down the gospel road. So what does it look like according to the verses? It looks like a single-minded glory in Jesus Christ, in who he is. I'm reminded of Aton Cashton, and I, and I will mimic his voice, who when asked several years ago, what do you think of our current president? He said, better than the last one, and not as good as the next one. Might that describe our worship year by year? So why does Paul seemingly digress here and speak poorly of all canines, right? He tells us to watch out for the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. It seems strange to me. There are at least two things at play here that might be useful to us as we step off the ledge into a new year with new challenges that we can't foresee right now. First, the mutilators of the flesh are those who would subject newer Gentile believers to a strangling conformity to Jewish law via the rite of circumcision in order to take from them the freedom that they have found in Christ. We do not have far to look to find these tendencies in the world around us and even within ourselves. We see it in our quickness to label our brothers and sisters according to their conformity to our unspoken collection of assumed standards. When Paul says that we are the circumcision, he might as well be saying we are the true Israel. Our measure is not our outward conformity to an imposed standard, but a heart that has been broken, redeemed, and is learning how to rejoice and truly worship by the Spirit of God. The second thing that we can take from this passage is to understand that the stakes are high. Paul is not nursing a petty grudge here. He's not trying to sort of incidentally poke a little shade at some vague adversary. This cosmopolitan church, the church of Lydia and her household, if you remember from our study in the book of Acts, of formerly demon-possessed women, of pensioned-off Roman soldiers and Roman jailers in this city that took pride in their status as a Roman colony. It is vulnerable, and it will be carefully watched by Paul and his team, whether they are right there in person or whether it's from a Roman jail. The stakes are high for them. They are also high for us, and they are high for our children, because it is possible to lose sight of the real good news of the gospel in favor of almost anything else, a philosophy or a worldview that we find merely and momentarily useful. Let's switch the slide to the next one. Chapter 3, beginning with verse 4 through 8, I'm labeling this one, Know What to Throw Away and Know What to Keep. One day I might run a, write a song with those lyrics. <laughs> Paul continues. <laughs> I'm really glad somebody left at that. <laughs> <laughs> Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Wow. What have we lost? Some of us here have lost much. Paul lists a catalog of things that he, by his fleshly rights, might value highly. His pedigree, his training, his former zeal, his academic standing among his own academic community, his esteem among his fellow Pharisees, his place in the social pecking order of the day. And yet, what does he say about it all? He counts it all as rubbish, stuff to be tossed, ready for the compost pile. Why? Because he had discovered bigger fish to fry. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For Paul, the idea of knowing is quite distinct from knowing about. You understand the the distinction? It is a settled conviction, a matter of the heart and of the mind and of the will. It is a foundational agreement with and a humble submission to the cost that will always accompany commitment to the truth. Philippians 1.27 speaks of it like this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The Oregon Trail began in St. Louis, Missouri, and it wound its way across the American West up toward the Willamette Valley in the state of what is now Washington, Or you can make a left turn somewhere and wind up in California. But the trail was marked, easy to determine. You know why? All you had to do was look for the junk tossed out of the wagons on the way. Everything from pipe organs, yeah, to china hutches, to mirrors and baubles and piano stools. That seemed so important at the beginning of the trip, lost their luster in the difficulty of the journey. So as we strap on our backpacks to launch into the unknown, one of the questions we should ask is, will this thing, will this item that I'm taking with me, that I'm clutching onto so tightly, will this pride or this bitterness or this unredressed grievance, this legitimate complaint that has never been resolved, will it help me to better rejoice and to better worship Christ and worship by the Spirit of God as we're instructed? And will it help me to carefully and tenderly look out for the vulnerable among God's people to say nothing of the shivering world that surrounds us? Next slide, chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. And Mike, my, my, I can't quite read that in the back, so I'm just going to presume that you, that you got it here. I'll call out the verse. I think we're good. Be found in him. And be found in him, 
Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. For Paul, it's not as though he's had to agonize over the value of the things that he's lost. He's not in the back of the Conestoga wagon wringing his hands as he looks at the pipe organ disappearing at the horizon, aching for the loss. Far from it. And you know that he has indeed lost a lot. He has lost his identity. He's lost his place, his respect among his former peers. And if you read carefully in the book of Acts, you'll see that he was indeed a man without a country. It took Barnabas to come alongside and leveraging his own respect and reputation, put his arms around Paul and reintroduce him to the highly skeptical apostles in Jerusalem. So what was his secret? It was simple, really. He discovered something else of surpassing worth, of priceless gain, to know and to be known by Christ, to actually dwell in the fellowship of Jesus in the very power of his resurrection. He would have his readers understand, and us as well, that to know Christ is a journey that will end when this spinning planet stops spinning, perhaps. For the believer, it may only begin at that point. And when, does, when it comes for us, we could meet the Lord in moments or minutes or days or years, but it will come with certainty, with the certainty of verse 12, which says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Next slide, 13 through 16. You're going to get a, a, a quick compressed education into a whole chapter of Scripture here this morning. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We encounter some remarkable phrases in this passage. We have images of athletes straining toward the finish line or oxen pulling in the mud or men and women forging a path through life with single-minded, focused effort and common shared will. Phrases like forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on, toward the goal of the upward call of Jesus Christ. The application is pretty clear, but let me unpack it for us just a bit. For most of us here, me included, there is uncounted blessing in forgetting what lies behind. Do we empty our memory banks? Of course not. We're not bound, though, by regrets, are we? If that is where we pitch our tent, we won't be able to see where we're going. 
I think we can praise the Lord this morning that we are charged to look forward more than we are to look backwards. So what is it to strain forward? Have you ever, have you ever done the, um, the highly dangerous task of riding a bicycle while you're holding on to a dog leash and there's a dog at the other end? I would not recommend that practice, especially if you're going to tie the leash to the front of your bicycle because when that dog sees the next fire hydrant, he is going to strain forward to get there and you're going with him whether you like it or not. Have you ever followed an ox behind the plow? I have never, and I would pay money for the privilege. I really would. Uh, just to feel the power of the great beast straining forward. To press on means to push the pile forward with a determination and a drive. Now, this is going to sound like bragging because it's exactly what it is. <laughs> I think of myself as the bicycle whisperer. I've had the privilege of teaching my children and not a few of my grandchildren how to ride a bike, and I know how to do it. If you get behind the child and just push them and they coast, they will eventually run into a tree or fall on the driveway and skin their knee, and then they will run inside and tell their mommy that grandpa is mean. <laughs> you don't do that. You walk beside them and you just scream into their ear over and over again, push those pumpers to get the idea that they have to push hard and when they do the great flywheel of that back tire begins to move and it's it's a it works every time but you got to push your pumpers and for a three-year-old which is about the age that we started teaching our kids to ride bikes they've never had to strain a muscle in their life to do anything right <laughs> So to hear the words, push your pumpers, is a new phenomenon. But if they get it, they can ride a bike, and it, and it comes almost instantly to them. But the key is in pressing on because we have an upward call. So what does it look like specifically? We push our pumpers when we, by his power, and I'm borrowing these from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, when we push our pumpers to obey the wise but difficult commands of the Lord Jesus, to own our poverty of spirit, to become peacemakers, to exercise mercy, to hunger for the righteousness of Christ, to have every one of our words actually mean something, to endure persecution knowing that ours is what? The kingdom of heaven. To rejoice and be glad when we are what? when we are reviled, to maybe pick up bits of foam off the track in order to build a testimony of integrity. Push your pumpers. I was thinking about titling this, the sermon with that, but I thought, you know, I'm not quite confident enough or brave enough <laughs> to do that. Another thing that's really important, look at the end of the passage Exercise patience with one another along the way. Allow the coffee to percolate at different rates. After all, not everyone is at the same point in the journey. Not everyone has tossed the china cabinet off the back of the Conestoga wagon yet. Your fellow travelers may need a little bit more time than you to know what to keep and what to throw away. 
And we allow the Lord to show them that in his perfect timing. And I really appreciate how one commentator has put it. The apostle here is confident that a desire to know the truth in full measure will be rewarded by fuller light. Be content to be open-minded and teachable and guide your life by the light that you have received. Next slide, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I'm calling this one step-by-step through a minefield. Brothers, Paul begins, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. To our egalitarian mindsets, it seems a bit cheeky for Paul to say, imitate me, doesn't it? We would much rather say, hey, I don't really want to tell you what to do, but this is a path that has worked for me, and you might want to consider it, and if it's useful for you, feel free to follow in my steps. Or, you know, there is more than one way to skin a cat. Now, all ways are good. All right. But the reason that we couch our advice in terms like these is because it seems dogmatic and prideful to say, follow my instructions and do exactly as I do. But consider this, what if you found yourself in the middle of a minefield and there was a guide who could get you safely through that minefield. I don't know about you, but I would never take my eyes off of where he placed his feet. And I would place my feet precisely in his footsteps. My eyes would never leave the path that he set. I would not be too concerned at that point about matters of cheekiness or good form, and neither would you remember that the stakes for this young church and for you and for me are high indeed. Paul goes on to remind them that many have not followed in his footsteps. They have struck out on their own with motives that are less than pure, and their end is destruction. It's important to note that Paul has repeatedly warned them of the dangers of that fatal road And the inevitable destruction of those who have scorned the true path has left Paul in tears, even as he writes. And here's where I'll just uh, make a parenthetical comment so you don't have to listen to this part. When brothers and sisters come in to pray for the elders, and the elders pray with them and over them and anoint them, I always make sure there's a box of Kleenex handy, and it's not because I'm... Um, I want to do something courteous for them as they come in, but it's because I never know when I'm going to need it. It it does not speak, by the way, tears, that is, do not speak of some extra special spiritual sensitivity. Nor do they speak of a creeping dementia. At least I don't think so. It's simply the hard wiring of the heart that in the grip of empathetic imagination cannot help itself. And it's also the reasonable response, I think, to the suffering that we often see 
as well as to the power and grace of our God who reliably and faithfully shows up time after time. This God who is faithful, not just in fulfilling his cosmic plan through his incarnation, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, but also came in order to tenderly address a very sick and frightened woman in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 13 as, do you recall the word? He goes out of his way to say, daughter. Next slide. I call this one simply citizenship. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do we believe this, folks, this morning? Yeah, yeah, we do. We believe it like we believe that two plus two is four. As we pack our bags for the journey that is the coming year, let's remember our passport. <clears throat> we have a citizenship in another country. I've been overseas a couple of times, and when we have children along, I will take their passports, and I will keep them on my person because I don't trust them for a second. In fact, <laughs> this isn't in the script. <laughs> the, uh, we, had the, uh, we were blessed to be able to send our 16-year-old son over to Taiwan many years ago now to help carry bags for his brother and sister-in-law and their baby bring them back home to the States. And he had to fly to Detroit and then to Osaka, Japan, and then on to Taiwan. And I knew this young man very well. And I said, Brett, if, <laughs> if you lose your passport in Detroit, we can figure out a way to solve the problem. And, if, and even if at your connection in San Francisco, something goes wrong and you throw it all in the trash accidentally or whatever. We can solve that one too, but if you get to Osaka, Japan, and that happens, you're on your own, kid. I, I, I'm not going to be able to help you very much. A passport matters, right? A couple of my daughters have served as missionaries to third world countries, and they have long since learned to be not flattered at the frequency of marriage proposals tossed at their feet. You can imagine why it becomes a, at least a potential ticket to residency in the United States. It's a path to reentry. I met a man in Ecuador who asked me if we could host his eight-year-old daughter in some sort of a foreign exchange thing. He didn't know me from Adam. He didn't know my name. But he recognized me as a in his eyes, at least, a rich white American. And why would he not send his daughter on a 4,000-mile one-way trip with this gentleman? Why? Because I had a passport. I could get on a plane anytime I wanted and head back, and he could not. I have come to highly value my passport, and I'm learning to value my citizenship in heaven even more. Whatever else I might bring on this journey into 2023, that may be the most important thing of all, and here's why. 
Our citizenship in heaven means what? It means that our rescue is assured. No citizen gets left behind. And that's a promise. Look it up in John 17. It means that there will be an end to the journey and that these beat up and broken bodies of ours will become like the body of our Lord and Savior and friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that we are protected and certified by the very power by which this universe and everything in it has been subjected to our champion, the Lord Jesus. As he hung the stars in their places, so he will call the roll, name us by name, and bring us safely home. To conclude this morning, I'd like to go back to the slide. Go to the next slide. That should be Philippians 4.1. I want to take another look at 4.1 and make a simple observation. The affirmations here, these seemingly overwrought complementary closings, are key to the message of the text. He says, my brothers, my joy and crown, whom I love and long for, my beloved. These terms of endearment aren't throwaway. They matter because pressing on is a community project. We are in this together, folks, from the littlest, most fragile infant among us to the most exhausted, vulnerable, older ones among us. And if we find little comfort in that, something is really important that is missing from our go bag. This train is leaving the station, heading into an unknown horizon, and like it or not, it will take us with it. Can we hold hands? <laughs> I was actually going to ask you to hold hands this morning, but to do that, to ask you to do that immediately before communion seems like um, a bridge too far. So do it in your imagination, in your empathetic imaginations this morning. Unimaginable trials may lie ahead for us, just around the corner, as well as unlooked for triumphs along the way, right? But Paul's question from Romans 8 still stands today as it has stood every day for the past 768,000 days, and I know that because I did the math, give or take, and it will surely stand tomorrow as well. Slide, the, the last slide, or the last two slides. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please pray along with me and with the music and the communion servers come on up.
Father, if we have not been given really difficult assignments in 2022, they could well await us in 2023 and beyond. Father, I pray that we would find great comfort and challenge and that our faith would become strong as we strain forward and press on into an unknown year. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.